Welcome to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. This teaching is from the series Authentic 2, a study of the letter of 2 John. The short letter of 2 John is full of big topics, helping to define an authentic Christian faith and life. We hope this helps you understand and apply God's Word in your life today. So we're going to be looking today at 2 John verses 1 to 3. 2 John verses 1 to 3. We're just going to take a couple of verses each week and work our way through looking at some of the key themes that are here in this letter. Today we're going to be looking at authentic blessing. So 2 John, we'll be looking at the first three verses, and I encourage you to, uh, you can read along up here on the screen. I'll be using the New International Version. You can also follow along in your Bibles. So hear now the word of the living God. The elder to the chosen lady and her children, whom I love in the truth, and not, on, not I only, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth which lives in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Father's Son, will be with us in truth and love. If you pay much attention out in our culture today, the word and the idea of being authentic is all over the place. People talk about it that what's really important is that one is authentic. This is actually coming out of kind of uh, existentialism and postmodern philosophy from back in the 60s. And, and it's an idea that what really matters is I'm just true to myself. Unfortunately, that's not true. It's not authentic. It's not real to who we were made to be. But we're going to be looking here in 2 John, we're calling it Authentic 2, because we had studied 1 John a few years ago, and I referred to it as authentic, because John is dealing with what is true Christianity. John's one of the major authors in the New Testament, um, and he's got kind of a unique theology and terminology. There are certain terms that John uses all the time that other people don't use very often, and sometimes he kind of has a different way of putting things. And his gospel especially focused on the deity of Jesus Christ. Uh, we've looked at his gospel a couple of different times, working through the seven signs of the miracles that point to the deity of Christ, and also the seven I am sayings that are there. And then John also wrote, uh, of course, the book of Revelation, which is the end, but he wrote three letters to some churches. And these churches were struggling with errors. They were struggling with some of the things that John was trying to correct actually in the gospel. And in these letters, he's defining what is authentic Christianity, that which is true, and that which is inauthentic or unauthentic, that which is not true, not genuine faith. And this is because there was immense pressure on some of these churches to adapt the Christian faith to match the culture. Rather than saying we're going to judge the culture by Christianity, we're going to take this and we're going to try and make Jesus kind of fit in with other ideas that are out here in the atmosphere, so to speak. And John is writing to explain to the believers why they can't do that, why that is unauthentic. And in fact, they need to embrace the true faith that's been delivered to all saints. And so this is equally important for us today because what I've just described sounds very much like the time we live in, doesn't it? 
there is a pressure upon us to make Christianity adapt to what's going on around us rather than saying, no, we, we will either accept or reject what's being stated around us based on the truth of God's Word. So we're going to dive in. Now, at the beginning, we see that the apostle, John, is writing to God's church. And at the very beginning, you know, the opening words in the letter are, the elder to the chosen lady and her children. Now, I'm not going to spend time this morning unpacking this a lot. I'm going to film an after hours later on today where I'm going to dive into exactly why I believe the elder is the Apostle John, not someone else. And the chosen lady and her children is not actually an individual woman and her children. It's a local church and the individual members of that church. There's a lot of reasons to believe that that's not an unusual belief, but I'm not going to take the time to unpack it this morning. If you are kind of a geek like me and you like diving into those kind of things, you can tune into After Hours on Tuesday, and I'll give you, you know, seven or eight minutes on why exactly John's addressing the letter this way and why we really can't know that it's actually the Apostle John writing to a local church probably the same community in Asia uh, where John sent 1st John and 3rd John and originally his gospel and where we know the Apostle John labored in the later years of his life. So I'll deal with that more there. But given that, that it is John writing to the church, what is he telling us? Well, the first thing that John wants the church to know is that the church is God's chosen people. Whatever else is happening around them, the church needs to be anchored in the fact that they are God's chosen people. So notice he refers to the elder, to the chosen lady. Uh, this is his uh, way of referencing the church, that we are God's chosen people. And in fact, it's not just in this verse. In, at the very end of the letter, in verse 13, he says, the children of your chosen sister which is another way. You remember Peter does the same thing in 1 Peter, referencing another local church sending greetings. And he says, so your chosen sister sends their greetings to you as well. And notice there, even though it's a chosen sister, you're getting a plural because we're dealing with the idea this is actually one local church greeting another local church. And this idea of being the chosen of God is very common in the New Testament. For example, in 2 Peter chapter 1, or 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1, Peter begins his letter this way, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, strangers in the world, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Now you remember when we were meeting outside a couple of months ago, I actually taught out of 1 Peter this idea of being strangers in the earth, that we are aliens, we are strangers. Tony just prayed that a moment ago. That is a big New Testament teaching that we live in the land of our exile. And when you are someone who is in exile, you are not in your own country, it can leave you feeling very vulnerable. And where do you find your identity? Well, Peter tells us the same thing that John is telling us. Here's where your identity is rooted. You may be an alien in exile in the very land where you are living, but you are not an alien in exile to God. You are God's chosen people. And that needs to undergird your thoughts of who you are. You are the chosen of God. Peter brings us up even further in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, where he's actually quoting 
from the Old Testament. He's quoting out of Exodus 19 when God made covenant with Israel. And he applies this to the church. He says, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light or his wonderful light. So again, Peter is saying, look, this is who you are. You have been chosen by God. Whoever you were before, you are now God's nation. You are God's people. You are his holy people and nation. You belong to him. And the idea is out of all the people on the earth, God says, I've chosen you. I've made you mine. So when we sit here as the church each week, when we gather, what should gird our minds, it should be our first and last thought each day is, we are the chosen people of God. That's what it means to be God's elect. Paul expands on this in Romans chapter 8, verse 33. He's in a string, and Paul's talking about being persecuted. The church is suffering, and he says this, who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. See, this is our security in troubled times. We are the chosen people of God. And so Paul's saying, who can accuse us? That's the, the, what the word Satan actually means. Who can stand there and bring any accusation? Because God has already declared not guilty. He has already said, they are my chosen people. They are justified. They are forgiven. It does not matter who lines up against us, who would testify against us. We are the chosen people of God. And in a country that recently has lost its mind over election, friends, let me tell you, this is the only election that ultimately matters, that God, in eternity past, voted for you. That's the election that matters. He has chosen you and me. And it does not matter what the culture says. It doesn't matter what the world is saying. It doesn't matter if we are exiles and strangers and in a Babylon that even turns hostile because God says, you are mine. That is good news over us. So Christian, take comfort. You are part of God's chosen people. You have been loved by him from all eternity, and you are secure into all eternity. That's what it means to be the chosen people of God. Now, with that background, John turns, and he speaks of a blessing from God. He pronounces a blessing upon the people, and he brings up three things that I want to talk about this morning. Three authentic blessings we have. First, we are blessed with authentic grace. If you are the chosen people of God, you are blessed with authentic grace. Now, it's kind of interesting because if you look, almost all New Testament letters begin with this greeting, grace. And the Christians did this because it was kind of a play on words. The normal way you began a letter in Greek back at this time is you used a word karain, which literally meant to rejoice but it was used for greetings, hi. Christians noticed that karain was very similar to charis, which was grace, and so they just kind of twisted it a little bit, and instead of saying karain, they said charis to one another. They said grace to one another. 
Because this is such a foundational concept for believers. Grace means that someone has a favorable disposition. They are favorably oriented in their attitude and their actions towards someone else. And for us as believers, it means it is the unmerited favor of God towards us. It means that though by my words and my thoughts and my deeds I have forsaken any right to the blessing of God, it is given to me freely because God's posture towards me is good. It is to bless me. Now, this is a very important word in the New Testament. I was shocked as I was studying for this letter to find out that John only uses the word grace seven times in all of his writings. Between the Gospels, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, and Revelation, he only uses the word grace seven times. But it's still very critical in his writings. The reason I say this is all seven times grace is related to Jesus Christ. There is no grace outside of or apart from Jesus Christ. Grace is only found through him. So the first time John uses it is in John chapter 1, verse 14, and then verses 16 to 17. He actually uses it a flurry of times. And I'm going to use the ESV here uh, for John chapter 1, verses 14, 16, and 17 because it is a little bit more literal in its translation than the I than the NIV. So we read, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So when John says here, he says, look, when Jesus came, when the word came, I want you to understand this, when he came and dwelt among us, he is full of grace. The word truth is important too, we're going to come back to that next week. But he's full of grace. And then in verse 16 he says, For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. The NIV has one blessing after another because they're trying to deal with this. It's a strange phrase. We've received grace and grace is kind of how John puts it here. But that's what he's doing. He's saying, look, when Jesus came, he's full of grace and he overflows grace and the grace flows over onto you. And then there's still so much grace. Grace flows on top of the grace that you've already been given. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. John says right at the beginning, you need to understand Jesus is full of grace, and you receive overflowing grace from him. So John begins very early talking about Jesus with that, and then John has the blessing and privilege of writing the last words in the whole Bible. And here they are. Revelation chapter 22, verse 21, the Bible ends this way. The grace of the Lord Jesus be upon God's people or be with God's people. Amen. The very last words of Scripture are a blessing of grace. And that grace is united with Jesus Christ. It comes through Jesus. It is given in Jesus. And it is upon God's people. Those who are the elect that we just talked about, those whom are chosen, God says there is grace upon you. Now this is critical because please hear me in this. Grace is the first and the last word of the Christian life. When you go to bed tonight, the last word spoken over you by God is going to be grace. 
And when your eyes pop open tomorrow morning, the first word that is going to be there, it's like there'll be an angel by your bedside and say, God says, grace. And then, no matter what your day is like tomorrow, good or bad, whatever the culture does, whether you've even been obedient or disobedient, the final word spoken over you tomorrow night will be grace because of Jesus Christ. That is good news for you and me. And friends, if you want a blessing, that is a blessing. The first and the last word over your life is grace. It's true today, tomorrow, and it'll be true when you draw your last breath. God will speak grace. Second blessing, as if that wasn't enough, is we are blessed with authentic mercy. As John says, grace, mercy, and peace. Again, mercy is a very common word. It's used 26 times, but here was something I was even more shocked by. This is the only time John uses it in the entire New Testament, right here in this verse. He doesn't use it anywhere else. Um, but it occurs 300 times plus in the Old Testament. They translated the Old Testament from Hebrew into Greek. This word appears 300 times, and it's really important because to the Greeks, normally what the word mercy and it's elias, some of you, if you've grown up in a more liturgical church, may remember the prayer, Kyrie eleison. That's Lord have mercy. That's this phrase, Kyrie is Lord, and eleison is mercy, elias. It occurs 300 times in the Old Testament. And to the Greeks, it normally meant to have love that's directed to someone in need. And in the Old Testament, it means that, but it's much deeper and richer. Because it was almost exclusively used in the Old Testament to translate the Hebrew word chesed. And I've mentioned this word before, and we actually sang it this morning. This word is God's faithful, unchanging, steadfast covenant, love, and mercy. It's not just that God sees a need and he might meet it. It's that God's mercy and love pursue us and stay with us, and they are faithful and they are unchanging, not because you and I are faithful and unchanging, but in spite of our unfaithfulness, but because God is faithful and unchanging. It is God's covenant mercy. So for example, it's used in Psalm 23, 6. We sang this in our opening song this morning, where we read, surely goodness and love, that is chesed, and it is translated as, with the, the Greek word elias, the Greek word mercy, and it will follow me all the days of my life. And actually the word there is stronger than follow. It means it will pursue me all the days of my life. Mercy is God's covenant, steadfast, unchanging, faithful love that pursues his little lamb, even when the lamb has strayed. Have you ever found yourself as a member of God's flock and yet you have wandered away from the flock and you find yourself now surrounded by wolves? Now, if you're honest, the answer to that question is uh, yes. <laughs> Regularly, I find myself in this place. 
And what we fear is God will say, oh no, I've had it. I'm not coming in there after you this time. But see, Psalm 23, where the Lord is my shepherd, it reminds me that God's mercy, his covenant, faithful, steadfast love will pursue me all the days of my life. And afterwards, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever because of mercy. You and I are kept by mercy until we see him face to face. Another place where we see this word used a lot, these are common ones, in Psalm 136. You remember, this is that strange psalm that's very long, and it's got a line, and every line ends with the phrase, his love endures forever. Or some translations say his mercy endures forever. Some say his steadfast love. It's the word chesed. And it's again translated by this same Greek word that we usually say is mercy. So it's give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. And the people say, his love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods. His love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of lords. His love endures forever. And so it goes on for verse after verse after verse. And we sometimes get bored and we say, we got the point. But see, God says, I don't think you do get the point. Because you think you have it until things go away you don't like. And when it seems like life is taking a left-hand turn, suddenly you begin to wonder, where is the love of God? Where is the mercy of God? And God says, I tell you this, wherever you are, whatever you are experiencing, whatever is happening around you, the steadfast love and mercy of the Lord endures forever. There will never be a moment in your life or in mine where we wake up and say, the mercy of God has run out. Never will we face that time. His mercy covers all our sin and it sustains all our life. We sang this this morning. No matter how great our sins, though our sins they are many, his mercy is more. Friends, you Whenever I hear that song, that, that song makes me want to sing Augusto because I know how great my sin is. It is good to know his mercy is more. No matter how deep my depravity, his mercy is deeper. No how wide my disobedience has been, his mercy is broader. It reaches to the heavens. So mercy pursues and covers us now and into eternity. But there's more. John says it's not just grace and mercy, there is peace. Now, peace was the common way that Jews greeted one another. When John grew up as a young boy, the way you walked up and said hi was shalom. Somebody said shalom back. I listened to a podcast the other day, and it actually had somebody that was speaking Arabic, and if you you listen in Arabic, you hear salam is their greeting, and it's, it's peace be upon you because it, they've actually derived it from Hebrew. There's a lot of the words that are similar. I wish we did. Wouldn't it be better in our language if instead of saying, hey, what's up? We said something like peace. I mean, that's actually a really good thing. I wish we did that. That's what they did at the time. And so it was adopted by Christians, but they usually joined it with grace. Most often it was grace 
and peace. In fact, 13 New Testament letters begin with grace and peace. This is one of the few times where John even expands it out a little bit more. And this is critical because, again, we think of peace as being just the absence of conflict, that, that, you know, I don't have any kind of turmoil going on. But see, that's not what the idea of shalom is in the scripture. In shalom, it's an entire state of well-being. It means I know I'm God's chosen child, that I'm part of his covenant people. It means I know that he is oriented towards me by grace. It means I know that his mercy is upon me, and it means that I am under the favor of God, and all things are rightly ordered by God. No matter what's going on around me right now, I know my Father is ordering all things ultimately for his glory and my good. This is what we're talking about when we say that we have peace. And so peace for us is first and foremost that we are in right standing with God, that we are in peace with God Almighty. For example, Paul tells us in Romans chapter 5, verse 1, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice again, Jesus, there's, there's no shalom outside of Christ. And Paul says, look, God has declared not guilty. And what that means is you are at peace with him. You are under his favor and blessing. And all of this is because of Jesus Christ. Secondly, as a believer who has experienced this peace with God, we actually have peace in the world, and it's not the peace that the world gives. Rather, it is the peace of Christ. So in John chapter 14, verse 27, uh, Jesus says, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled, and do not be afraid. Now this is the night Jesus is betrayed. So the disciples are about to have their whole world shaken up. I mean, within hours, nothing is going to make sense. The whole world's going to seem upside down. But Jesus here is telling them, I am speaking peace over you. I am giving my peace to you. And I don't give it like the world. With the world's peace, it's up and down. It depends on the circumstances. I'm telling you, even when everything seems upside down for like, I don't know, the next three days, and you don't understand anything, you should understand this. I've given you peace, and it will never go away. So our peace that we're talking about is not the peace of the world. It is rather the peace that Christ gives. And for this reason, Jesus tells us that it survives even the troubles of the world. In John 16, you know, this is his whole Last night, he gives this kind of long sermon there from John 14 to 16. And at the end, he concludes it this way. I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world, you will have trouble. Okay? Put that in your Jesus promise book. It's not popular. There's all kinds of guys today on Christian TV and radio, telling you if you just come to Jesus and you have enough faith, you will not have trouble. Okay? Jesus said, 
you will have trouble in this world because you're in exile. You're an alien. You're a stranger. To be right with me is to be out of step with the world. But, Jesus says, but take heart. I have overcome the world. You can have the peace of the loser or you can have the peace of the victorious one. And Jesus says, be of good cheer. Take heart. I'm giving you peace and I overcome the world. So we have peace in Christ. To be in him is to have peace. In this world, we're going to have trouble. It's going to include all the normal troubles of living in a fallen world. Okay, This world, because it's fallen and because we're fallen, there's just aches and pains and sickness and difficulty and problems and pain. I want to remind you, uh, when somebody named Scott Ruprecht taught on peace, just this past month, he said this, peace is not the subtraction of problems from life. Peace is the addition of Jesus Christ to meet those problems. Friends, that, hear that. Let that seek, sink into your soul. Because whether it's just the normal difficulties like 2020, or if it's absolute opposition from the unbelieving world because we are walking in the faith, which is a normal part of the Christian life, what matters is not getting those things subtracted. What matters is that Jesus has been given to us to more than meet those things. And that means we can have peace even under trial uh, and persecution because Jesus has overcome the world. So peace comes to us. It fills the Christian's heart and mind. It puts us at ease even when suffering in this world because we know that in Christ, God is for us. And if God is for us, who can be against us? And it does not matter who sets themselves against us. So all of this is true for us in Christ. So let's talk about applying the word. There's really two simple questions, and we're going to come to the Lord's table. First, most important question, am I in Christ? Because none of this applies apart from Jesus Christ. Now, this is not popular when I say this, right? Because, see this thing, authentically today, you have your truth, I have my truth. Except that's a lie. There is no such thing as your truth and my truth. There is the truth. And the truth is the only way to peace. That's through Jesus Christ. So notice in 2 John 1, 3, John says this, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and from Jesus Christ. The Father's Son will be with us in truth and love. Authentic blessing comes from God, not the world. That which the world offers is inauthentic. It is not true, and that's why it comes and goes. Authentic blessing, because it comes from God, is found only through Jesus Christ. There is no other way. There is no other mediator between God and man other than Jesus Christ. So the question for us is, if you want grace and mercy and peace, are you in Christ? Because let me be clear, 
It's not being a member of this church. It's not having me say something over you. It's not that come down here afterwards and I'll, well, I'll elbow bump since it's 2021 and we're still doing that. And you'll get grace, mercy, and peace. Grace, mercy, and peace comes from being in Christ. And it doesn't matter what else you do, whatever holy handkerchief you get, whatever oil you're anointed with, there is no grace, mercy, and peace apart from Jesus Christ. So are you in Christ. I urge you, look to him. Nothing else matters. We're, we're going to talk a lot this year about some of these topics. No other identity matters. What matters is not that I'm an American or that I'm a male or that my skin is white or that I'm six foot two and have eyes blue. None of that matters. My identity is I'm in Jesus Christ. I either am or I'm not. Are you in Christ? And if you're not, I urge you, look to him today. Secondly, I want to ask if you are a believer, which would be most of us certainly, am I living in the reality of this authentic blessing? I'm not going to tell you three steps to get the blessing because that would be implying that you don't already have the blessing. What I'm telling you is if you are in Christ, this blessing is yours. You don't have to do anything. There is no second step. I'm not going to tell you I'm going to write a book, and for $9.99 you can order it, and it'll give you the path to blessing. If you are in Jesus Christ, this blessing is yours. It is reality. It is the authentic reality for every believer. So when you wake up tomorrow, the first word over you is going to be grace. And as you walk through your day, it is going to be mercy spoken over you. And when troubles come, God speaks shalom over you. And when you lay down at night, God's going to say grace, mercy, and peace upon you. The only question is whether I'm hearing it, whether I'm paying attention to it. God is speaking that word to you and me in Jesus Christ. Are my thoughts being shaped by this authentic reality or by the false report of the world? Is my, is my focus on what God is doing? Uh, I, I was actually, uh, I was happy the other day. I looked and my wife had posted something at the end of 2020 on Facebook. And it was actually just pictures of her and the grandkids and good things that had happened in 2020. And I was so happy and proud of my wife because the last thing I need is another post telling me all the things that were messed up about 2020. Okay? Everybody knows. But as a believer, that's not authentic reality for us. That stuff comes and goes. Grace, mercy, peace is authentic reality. And when we're around and we can hug each other and the masks aren't on and COVID is a distant memory, if you are not under the grace, mercy, and peace of God, you have nothing, friend. And if all of life seems to be falling apart, But every day you awake and God says grace, mercy, and peace upon you. And every night as you are falling asleep, God says grace, 
mercy, and peace. My first and my last word over you. Better to be a martyr being stoned to death and the last phrase over you in this world is God saying grace, mercy, and peace than being blessed with everything this world has to offer and you are apart from that grace, mercy, and peace. Friends, as believers, do we understand that? I want to urge you this week, live in the reality of this blessing. Your life begins and ends with grace. You are kept by mercy now and into eternity. The peace of God surrounds you, your day and your night, no matter the troubles in this life. And this is true, not because I'm standing here and want to give a nice little teaching. It's true because what we're about to do. Jesus Christ purchased this for you and me by his broken body and his shed blood. And if we believe that, friends, this is our reality. So what we're going to do is we're going to come to the Lord's table now and I want to encourage you, as we come to this table, this table is for everyone who's a believer in Jesus Christ. I want to encourage you that what we are doing here is the reality that defines you and me as believers. So hear God's word of invitation to you. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is everyone who takes refuge in him. For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those whose walk is blameless. Come, all you who believe, and Jesus Christ to the table prepared for you. For what I receive from the Lord, I pass on to you. That the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he'd given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out so that your sins may be forgiven. Drink from this, all of you, in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Lord, we come as your chosen people this morning to your table. Send now your Holy Spirit that we may feast upon your grace and freshly receive your blessings. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. If you take the little packets out, you can take the first layer off and you'll have the bread. And we'll take it together in just a moment. Jesus, you said, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me 
will never go hungry. And he who believes in me will never be thirsty. In taking this bread, we profess that you are the eternal Son of God, the source of life and all its blessings, and the only door to eternal life. Brothers and sisters, take and eat, letting your soul feast upon Christ, the true bread of heaven. Jesus, you said, I tell you the truth, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in him. Just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. Jesus, we take this cup in faith, professing that you are the source of life, the fount of every blessing, and we receive you and all of your blessings by faith alone. Brothers and sisters, take and drink, slaking the thirst of your soul through Christ. Holy Trinity, you are the source of every good thing we have. Creation itself is the overflow of your goodness, richly expressing your beauty and your bounty. Redemption is a display of your wisdom, holiness, and love, given for us to richly enjoy, even though by our sins we do not deserve it. Today we give you thanks for all these blessings we have in and through Christ. And we look forward to the eternal day when darkness, disease, and death will be swallowed up in eternal day and full blessing. Lord, send us forth by your Spirit so that we might be agents of your blessing in this world. We ask all of this in the name of Christ through whom all these blessings are given to us. And God's people say, amen. amen. Let's stand together. And I'm going to conclude <clears throat> with the blessing that John gave and that we've just studied. So I encourage you to receive the full, bountiful blessing of God. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father from Jesus Christ, the Father's Son, will be with us in truth and love. Friends, you are blessed. Go forth and be a blessing. Amen. Thank you for listening to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. For more teachings and resources, please visit www.brcc.church.